Welcome to MI Cynic, the podcast with a license to inform. This is your host, Thomas Brancato. Today I have the honor of introducing Mr. Luis Campos. Luis is an analyst in chief for the Americas at Horizon Intelligence. His education includes a master's in international affairs and strategic studies at the Central University of Nicaragua. I wanted to speak to Luis today about the work that he did chiefly on the situation in Colombia, uh, but I'm sure is going to expand a bit regionally as well. And in how we can use open source intelligence to look at some of the developing crucial blips of news on the map and, uh, and see how we can try and make sense of it. How are you doing? And talk to us a little bit about what you're doing today. Sure. Thank you very much, uh, Thomas, for inviting me to, to the show. Um, yes, I'm an intelligence um, practitioner. I have um, about 12 years of experience. Um, I've served in the Army of Nicaragua as a strategic intelligence uh, chief of section. And currently, I'm working at Horizon Intelligence, uh, coordinating the team um, that's located in the Americas, pretty much in different countries of the Americas. Uh, and we try to do our best to meet our client security needs in that regard. Colombia's back in the world news in big style and not in the best light. Over the past month, Colombian paramilitaries have been linked to the plot to kill the Haitian president, died in violent clashes in uh, Caracas, Venezuela's capital, and have been convicted of having murdered more than 120 civilians masquerading as guerrillas. This is uh, Colombian soldiers. How much of this can be traced back to Colombia's legacy of political violence? I, I mean, I remember growing up in the 90s and uh, the FARC and, and the, the incredible amounts of, uh, of almost civil war that was uh, on the news back then, uh, and which appears to be back in the news now. More than 9 million people have died, disappeared, or been displaced thanks to fighting against uh, these guerrilla forces in Colombia since the 1960s. And it appears that this is not abasing, it's not uh, simmering down, uh, but rather it's picking back up. Is there a link between what's happening now, what we're looking, what's making Colombia appear on the world news, and the same old political extremism that's been the story since the 1960s? Something that I have noticed uh, regarding the um, Colombian armed forces is that they have a high level of uh, professionalism and technical preparation. And the entire um, situation in Colombia in terms of fighting the guerrillas, their uh, national security doctrine, and their recent history, at least uh, the last uh, 50 years, it shows um, Colombia as a country that's uh, a machine to produce um, military, uh, well-prepared uh, people. So it sounds many analysts considered uh, Colombia with uh, different levels of uh, access uh, to information that whenever you see violence in, um, in, in the Americas, the Colombians have to do a little bit at least uh, on that uh, with different cartels different uh, guerrillas being formed at some point in like in the 80s in Central America. And uh, as you mentioned, the, the situation with the um, uh, President uh, Moises uh, killing. So yeah, it, it, there is, uh, it sounds like there is a connection 
with, uh, with the situation and the recent history of, uh, of Colombia. Colombia is back in, in the news and, um, and of course this has provoked interest in parties and traditionally the work of the, the analyst, in your case the private uh, sector and intelligence analyst, is to try and make sense of it. You know, why is this happening? Where is this happening? How is this happening? And how will it impact Colombia and, and the world around it? And to that end, you've uh, prepared a, a report, which I've had a look at, which is called Civil Unrest in Colombia, the Impact for Transport and Logistics. This is a work that you've done with uh, Horizon Intelligence. And it's a great report. I had a, a lot of, uh, it was great for me to read it anyway, and to have a look at what the modern day uh, OSINT analyst does. And it's a great example, and it's been publicly available, uh, for which I thank you. And um, and I have a few questions just just based on on this work that you've done, and something I think our audiences would, would be able to cherish as well. Um, when you wrote this report, Luis, who did you have in mind uh, in as far as a, a target audience, and um, and what use would they have for this report? So this uh, report. Uh the original idea I, I, I would like to mention uh, was in, inspired by uh, uh, the CEO of Horizon Intelligence, which is uh, Eduardo Camilli. He mentioned that he would like me to cover the situation in, in, in Colombia, but from a perspective that might be very beneficial for uh, our clients, like uh, this persona, this general persona that we, that we have as, as client that might be um, uh, a private company, international organization, and, and so on. So the purpose of this, um, of this report was to create a product that might give you inf information regarding which areas to be aware of to the level in which you, can, uh, you may see which uh, streets, highways, bridges to avoid or just to be aware of the the given situation um, uh, in, 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 in Colombia and be aware of exports, imports, uh, gas supply shortages, food uh, shortages as well. And, and, and just pretty much have a general, but at the same time specific enough picture of the, of the situation. But the, 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 the purpose was to uh, sort of satisfy um, the need for information for uh, decision makers, but in the private sector, not necessarily governmental um, uh, organizations or entities. Right. Okay. So it's, it's also for uh, keeping in mind the safety of the individual, but also keeping in mind the safety of um, actors in the, in the arena who might be moving around goods and uh, who might be needing to uh, continue business even in in a hostile environment. So they would be looking at your report with with particular interest, and uh, and they would be looking at two areas that you delineated, which were sort of major hotspots. And you have an interactive map in which you can sort of see these these color coded bubbles, if you will, these heat maps increase over time. And there were two areas you delineated: the Cali Pasto Bogota Pereira line and the Cartagena, Barranquilla, Bosconia, Cesar area. Can you talk to us about why these concentrations matter? What, uh, what is the use in heat mapping, as it were, the, the sources of violence and into geographically tagging them, so to speak? Once you have the two delineated areas, 
How is that useful for, for your target audience and what, what can they gather from that? So um, since we wanted to assume the transport and logistic uh, perspective for this um, report, we had to turn that into the, the pivot uh, or at least the, the general approach uh, for, the, for the analysis. So we, I, I sort of went ahead and, and used this uh, geopolitical methodology approach in which you take um, individual incidents or event and then make an effort to try to detect uh, trends and from those trends uh, build up generalizations and, and, and sort of organize um, in the most systematic way uh, that you can the knowledge that you have uh, at hand. So in this case, um, at, the, at the very center of the analysis was the, the, the intention of being able or to satisfy the needs for transport and logistics, because you must be aware that in civil unrest situations, and most commonly in Latin America, when there's this type of situation, a national strike or uh, massive protests in at least uh, 15 different locations, if, um, if the situation continues to evolve, Transport and logistics has a, a strategic meaning, uh, uh, meaning. So you want to, on the side of the demonstrators, um, paralyze most of the economic operations of the country. And, and we, we will detail that uh, uh, ahead. So the idea here of dividing the map into these two uh, major locations, the Cali, Pasto, Bogota, Pereira um, area, and, and then the Cartagena, Barranquilla, Bosconia, Cesar was uh, to focus in the case of the, uh, of the first um, segment or area on the Buenaventura port, which is very near to Cali. And it happens to be of major importance for imports, but especially for coffee bean exports. More than 50% of um, the coffee uh, production that's exported go through um, or is exported through the Buenaventura port. And in this current situation that uh, Colombia just uh, experienced, um, we were basically going into the culmination of the coffee harvesting season. So it's uh, you have all this grain, all these beans ready for export. And if you disrupt the logistic uh, change, you, you see what happened. Like um, it, that even provoked uh, changes or uh, an increase, uh, a transitory increase uh, in the prices of international, international prices of uh, coffee beans. So that, that was uh, the, the situation there. And then when you see the other, um, the other area, the Cartagena one, uh, you can see that the most um, that um, geographic area concentrates, concentrates the highest uh, population density of the country and about uh, a little more than 50% of the coffee production of the, of the, of the country. And uh, that, uh, that port, um, it's connected or that area is connected to the uh, Cartagena port. And you can, um, you can determine it has huge importance. So when it comes to um, uh, terminals for imports or exports, um, 
at some point of the civil unrest situation, um, demonstrators even tried to uh, or penetrated the, the facilities in the uh, Buenaventura port. And we, we were able to see or, or, or cases of looting uh, and stealing of precious cargo, especially coffee, um, was, uh, was registered there as well. So it's, uh, it's pretty much how we organized the situation in terms of how important each location is uh, regarding uh, logistics and international uh, logistics, uh, actually. There's a couple of things that you said that took me by by surprise. But let's go. Let's go back to the um, the actual building of uh, the data sets, so to speak. Because when when we talk about the the inputs to to this uh, report, I imagine we must be talking about hundreds, if not thousands, of individual incidents that uh, would would then later need to be kind of put into this map. But um, you know, just to just explain maybe a little bit briefly, how do you deal with that colossal amount of, of numbers? Do you have to manually import every every data set? Um, do you do you scout these incidents online? I mean, how do you access that that raw information? And is there any way you can speed up the process of making sense of that raw data? So, since this is uh, based on open source intelligence, there's a, an undetermined number of incidents that probably did not make it to social media or did not make it to um, to a, a, a newspaper's website and so on. So we can we can um, talk about this in terms of sampling. The size of the sample, uh, it's impossible to, to determine, but um, we do have at Horizon Intelligence our Lookout uh, platform, which is an uh, artificial intelligence um, uh, resource that basically collects uh, and process or initially process uh, hundreds of thousands of different sources and you can you, you we basically get the information process onto uh, a certain level and then we have our uh, team of uh, analysts uh, continue like to build up this uh, uh, report and then everything since is um, based on um, on data structures it goes uh, build up into a into a database which allows us to create um, these interactive uh, maps like the one you were able to see in the article uh, on our website so we were able to um, basically just run uh, a, a map um, recording all of the different um, we, we call it the number of affected locations, not the number of protests, but the number of affected locations. Because for example, we could uh, be talking about 150 different affected locations, but then the number of protests, things may have happened at a different time of the day, or groups might be coordinating more than one affected location and, and, and so on. So. And since everything is being um, geotagged, it's, it makes it very easy. Once you analyze the quantitative data, uh, it's very easy to even withdraw certain conclusions like uh, many of the affected locations were not random at all. We're mostly in uh, intersections. You can maximize the, maximize the, the impact 
with the minimum effort. And did you did you find it in this instance, uh, you know, when you're dealing with proprietary software, when you're dealing with a form of maybe artificial intelligence, I'm not sure if we could uh, we could call it that, or machine learning, or you know, when you're using highly advanced software and computing to to be able to populate these lists. Did you find in this case that the the role of the analyst, the role of yourself, was to to correct these uh, perhaps these biases and to make something you know semi coherent uh, that makes sense you know to to our maybe worldview or or the you know the way that we train to see the world so to speak or is it the case that uh, did you find actually in this instance the uh, the software that you're using got it mostly right and is bang on the money, so to speak. Did you have to play a balancing act between that? Or did you feel uh, that mainly it was an, an asset to have something that that helped you in your work? Um, well, we we use a, a combination, definitely, uh, at our machine learning resources. It can This can, can do the, the job up to a certain point. And then human intervention it's completely mandatory to add the really really accurate um, portrayal of the of the situation uh, obviously technology technology has limitations as to let's say uh, i'm gonna process uh, 10 different sources for a single day report uh, but then if uh, if a, a place is called let's say Puente Buenos Aires. The, the, the two words, Buenos Aires or, or the string Buenos Aires might be located in 10 different countries and so on. So there's challenges. Obviously, technology has uh, limitations. And in those cases, it's when the analyst goes ahead and, 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 and um, finish up the job to make sure, okay, this is the location which is... Uh, uh, this incident is taking place. Actually, it's not taking place in Argentina. Not taking place in Mexico. Is and in, uh, in Colombia in this case. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that, Luis. So, the other part of the of your answer a little bit earlier back that took me by surprise is when you when you got into a bit of detail uh, listing how organised the demonstrators in Colombia really are, because this is something I didn't know beforehand. Coming into this, it was I, I didn't realise how. Presently, perhaps they have in mind the, the economics of it all, the, the trade aspect of what they're doing and Colombia's needs as a nation. So you, you mentioned specifically the ports of Buenaventura and Cartagena and how the demonstrators are quite accurately pinpointing these locations to do, I suppose, as, uh, targeted as much damage as possible. Um, and this, this took me by surprise because... Um, you know, I guess that my uh, naivety would assume that uh, demonstration, even the word of it, is quite spontaneous. It's a feeling of anger. It's mainly political. It has, doesn't really have to do with a long-term strategy. But when we're talking about economic warfare, uh, when we're talking about a leadership of these demonstrations that might know, okay, we're going to do the most damage if we, uh, you know, attack the harbor at this time during this season, whatever it is. So this took me by surprise, and I'm going to get into this a little bit more, because it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that when we're talking about this level of organization, we're talking about sort of a, a political agenda, and not just a, you know, an innocent event, a one-off, a public manifestation at the public square, you know, with a bunch of 
angry people, essentially, but rather a campaign. Am, am I wrong here to talk about it under these lines? How do you make sense of it? Well, Thomas, actually, that's a, a great question. Probably is the most important question in this type of situations. And that's where most governments and analysts tend to, um, to make a mistake there. Uh, so making this uh, distinguishing from uh, spontaneous, um, let's say, a protest, and if there's something that was pre-planned and then uh, just uh, unleashed, basically. So in this situation, uh, in, in the specific case of, uh, of uh, Colombia, we could see that uh, most of the protests were spontaneous. However, political groups, and this is extremely common in Latin America, tend to uh, just go ahead and bandwagon the situation, like try to capitalize on the situation. But that does not um, uh, deny the legitimacy of the social protest. That's something very important to, that needs to be mentioned because most commonly um, governments um, in different um, countries, if they see a social protest, uh, for example, the case of uh, Cuba recently, um, if, uh, if uh, I, I like to say this, I like to, to postulate this, all the parties, all the stakeholders in a, in, in a political scenario do have a part of the truth. The truth that we intelligence analysts are, are always striving for. And um, so, for example, in the case of Cuba, the government would say that the protests were organized from Washington or Miami. Um, so that, that, that's the old, uh, the old argument that still uh, persists. Uh, and so we can see, we can see the, that situation being, you know, continuing to be part of the uh, Cuban government uh, narrative. However, if the society in general were to be extremely happy with the government, then no protest, protest will take place. It would, wouldn't make sense. Uh, you would not have a critical mass of uh, social dissatisfaction or resentment. So it would not be possible to refer to a, a, an actual social uprising uh, situation. So in the case of Colombia, the protest did and does have a uh, legitimacy. And uh, obviously when you analyze the situation uh, after the, the, the crisis was uh, at least up to a certain point controlled or solved, we can try to reconstruct uh, the facts. And uh, something that I have noticed personally is that there was a lot of diversity in the protest, even the, the, the demands uh, for example, the National Strike Committee would have a, 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 a more than 100 points uh, of demand towards the government. Some part of the of the demonstrators were demanding a socialist revolution. Some parts were demanding just um, tax reduction. Some other sectors would be uh, demanding um, more. Um, social pro projects and, and, and more state intervention or less. So we had a lot of variety. And, but also we did see a lot of uh, a significant level of planification, like we have mentioned, um, tackling strategic uh, nods to 
uh, cause a maximum impact. That's extremely common. Uh, we could see that in, 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 in Serbia, for example, I would say the, the most determinant factor that caused uh, uh, Milosevic's uh, fall was that the pro-democracy demonstrators were able to effectively uh, control uh, strategic resources at, at, a, at a given time. So, and, and we can see that intention in the case of the Colombia civil unrest crisis. It's interesting because, you know, just as I was hearing your answer, I realized how we have different words for this. Do we call it a manifestation? Do we call it a demonstration? Do we call it civil unrest, civil war, political extremism? There's so many words. And certainly, you know, my intention is not to delegitimize one camp or the other. I, you know, I don't have a stake and uh, my cynic is, is all about finding the grain of truth as it is uh, every analyst's uh, mission, I hope. Um, but it's important to ask these questions in order to, to understand what, what we're talking about. You know, certainly if we can, just off the top of my head, compare what's happening now in Colombia to the Arab Spring of 2011-ish, uh, you know, there we, we're able to see a, a difference in, in the overall level of organization tactics, um, the modus operandi, so to speak. Uh, the Arab Spring seems to me, looking back upon it as sort of, a, if you can imagine, like a fireworks that, that in the middle of the night, public expression of anger. And it was as pure, I think, as you could get to a, a public that was absolutely fed up and, uh, and just spontaneously decided to descend on the public square and voice their anger and that, you know, ballooned all over. But it does sound to me like we're talking about something different now in Colombia, something much more organized with perhaps a bit more leadership and, and more tactical thinking behind it. And that's, you know, not to say that there's, there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, it, it's just interesting to keep in mind uh, what these differences might be and, and what exactly we're talking about and how that information might be useful to to an interested party, whether that's to keep people safe or or whatever it is. But with Latin America, I think uh, you touched on another point, which is when these demonstrations, civil unrest, whatever you want to call them, happens, the powers that be seem to want to descend into very easy blame games, into you know saying this is either a leftist uh, plot, a coup d'etat, or this is a right-wing uh, you know, Washington backed, whatever. And that exacerbates a problem because, you know, you're selling to this public, this all or nothing approach that completely delegitimizes uh, the other side of the camp and makes make compromise almost impossible. So I do take that point and, and it is worrying. All the things that we're talking about now seem to point to left-right divide as the heart of the matter of what's happening in, in Colombia. So let's talk more about that. Your report indicates that there was a drastic increase in violent protests. And this is despite the government reorientating a, a large sum of funds uh, for social projects. I believe that they were intentionally uh, supposed to be earmarked for uh, a certain expense and then it was reoriented. And maybe you can, you can talk to the audience a bit about uh, what this large sum of money was. But what I want to get to is, is there a point by which these protest demonstrations, civil unrest, whatever you want to call them, turn into political radicalization? And has that line been crossed in Colombia? That's a, that's a great question, Thomas. And <clears throat> something that um, I was able to notice in, in the situation in Colombia, 
is that the level or sophistication of the demands and the cohesion, the internal cohesion of uh, such demands was not very high. Uh, why am I saying this? Um, up to a certain point, uh, as I mentioned, <clears throat> we were able to see left-leaning demands, right-wing sort of demands, um, and a deeply divided perspective from the general public. <clears throat> Something that I was able to, to see is that um, the population, you, you were able to see, and, and, and I like to navigate social media regarding this and running analysis, uh, let's say on Twitter, massive analysis, <clears throat> just uh, to sort of uh, estimate the level of support that uh, deeply antagonizing positions show uh, in a given scenario. So in the case of Colombia, you were able to see radical, right-leaning, Urivista sort of um, ideas, and then up to a different, uh, a different, a completely opposing position, sort of leftist, revolutionary uh, positions. Those divides are extremely prevalent in Latin America, and I don't think that's uh, going away anytime soon. Maybe it's one of the least uh, last places in the world in which such a uh, political ideological divides are still vibrant, just as if it were the uh, Cold War. Like in Latin America, we're still discussing or have the word communism in in in, uh, in political discussion. So that 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 does say something interesting. Now, in terms of radicalization, as as you mentioned. Um, something that we were able to notice is that up to a certain point, the Duque government allowed the crisis to evolve. And in this situation, uh, timing is everything. For example, if you have the initial um, civil unrest incidents in, I want to stop there for a second, uh, at least in our methodology here at uh, Horizon Intelligence, we define civil unrest as um, sort of uh, forms of protest demonstrations in which violence will occur, regardless of which side origina originated uh, or engaged in such violence. Um, <clears throat> so in this uh, in this situation, and and this also we can see in different in some other countries, the government does allow society to endure the consequences and the, the effects of such a civil unrest situation. The protests just allow the demonstrators to take over up to a certain point. Obviously, when to act for a government this can be extremely challenging um, because you want to, obviously the timing that uh, President Duque allowed was to um, create the possibility for the protest to cause such an impact that would potentially uh, um, uh, sort of delegitimize the cause itself. <clears throat> so in that regard, we were able to see that uh, President Duque sort of allowed the conflict to grow and then intervene in a given moment. The problem, in my opinion, it was that um, after uh, some time, after some weeks, like uh, after the, the, the second week, the level of state response was, um, in my opinion, um, excessively violent, but 
probably due to um, engagement protocols that were not uh, um, prepared to deal with civil unrest situations. So that, that was pretty clear to me. And obviously that caused an impact in which polarization increased. But I was, I was surprised by the fact that even when the situation already caused uh, more than, than, four, uh, than 40 uh, fatalities, the demonstrators were not demanding uh, President Duque's resignation. That was something that really caught my, my attention in some, in, 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 a, in some other examples or some other cases of civil unrest, massive civil unrest. At that point, it would, would have been very predictable to see a population or see demonstrators demanding the, the resignation of, uh, of the president. In the case of Colombia, and, and this piece of, uh, of a fact sort of uh, showed me that the variety of uh, demands was uh, very intricate, was uh, very complex in, in, in this situation because certain voices in the National Strike Committee were demanding the resignation of the Secretary of Defense, uh, uh, Molano. And even though they demanded that, uh, their request went into the Congress. It was voted, and 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 um, and, and uh, uh, <clears throat> Secretary of Defense Molano was not uh, removed from his uh, from his seat. So that that shows you a little bit of uh, of uh, of the situation there. So if we were to see more um, unified, more more consolidated demands, maybe the result would have been different. So. And at no moment, uh, not, not in for a second was uh, demanded, uh, at least from the data we had uh, access to, was demanded for President uh, Duke's uh, resignation. So radicalization, don't seem much more than will be uh, considered normal in Colombia. And that concludes the first part of my interview with Luis Campos, where we discussed the intelligence cycle regarding the public demonstrations in Colombia. Stay tuned for the second part where we elaborate more on these topics. And I hope you'll stay with us for the next episodes that we've got planned. Please remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube and more. And of course, to check out our website for the latest episodes. Thank you so much and have a great day.